welcome to the Breakout Growth Podcast, where Sean Ellis and Ethan Gar interview leaders from the world's fastest growing companies to get to the heart of what's really driving their growth. And now, here are your hosts, Sean Ellis and Ethan Gar. All right, in this week's episode of the Breakout Growth Podcast, Ethan Gar and I chat with Hugo Pereira. You may remember Hugo from an early episode when he was leading growth at EV Box, an electric vehicle charging stations manufacturer that was in hyper growth scale up mode. It was a great conversation. And we, when we heard that Hugo was now building Ritmu, a startup team communications and engagement platform, we thought this could be a really interesting revisit. And we weren't disappointed. So Ethan, what stood out to you? Oh, man, Sean, I'm such a Hugo fan. Uh, when he was first on the podcast with you, I wasn't even your co-host yet, but I just remember listening to that conversation and thinking, this is how I want to look at the world. Hugo has this personal mission to be a continuous agent for positive change, and he's so intentional with that. He talks about that every time you hear it, you talk to him, and you can tell he just lives it every day and is bringing that into the startup work. And you know, it's just such a different world from that rocket ship scale up EV box that he was at to now this pre-product market fit startup. But I think it's that contrast where the learnings are in this conversation. Yeah, I think that's where our listeners are going to find some real value in this conversation. Hugo's bringing that amazing scale-up experience into his approach to driving startup success, but he isn't making the common mistake of believing that because you found product market fit in one place, you're automatically going to find it in another. He's listening to the market. He's talking to people about their problems. He's running pilots. He's doing everything that you need to do to give yourself that fighting chance. It's a systematic, data-driven, and experiment-based approach. Yeah, definitely. I, and, you know, and I know the odds are always stacked against startups, but if I had to bet on someone being able to figure it out, I'd just bet on Hugo. I think his approach is just so sound. And you know, there was this one moment where he said that if he and his co-founder find that their product assumptions are wrong, they'd be willing to do, go into the service business mode for a year or more just to recalibrate their approach and better understand the market. And I think you know, most founders probably don't have that, that room, but most wouldn't have the patience. And I think that you know, it just makes so much sense as he thinks about this new kind of world that he's approaching. Agreed. And his scale-up experience helps him to think about prioritization and goals in a way that most founders can't. He had to learn how and when to say no at EV Box to keep an eye on what really mattered. And that's particularly important when you're trying to find product market fit in the startup world. Yeah, he has a super principled approach to leadership and focus. And I think you know, he's just really good at articulating that in a way that our listeners are going to be able to benefit from and relate to. I don't think people hear this and think of this as like an academic exercise. It's just down to earth, actionable insights from a really smart guy. Yeah. Well, I think you're right, Ethan. And I wouldn't bet against Hugo either. It may take some time, but he's one of the real leaders in the growth space. And I have a feeling that we're going to have him back on to talk about Ritmo's growth in the not too distant future. So should we jump in? Yeah, let's do it. Hey, Hugo, welcome back to the Breakout Growth Podcast. Thank you, Sean. Thanks, Ethan. Really great to be back here. And thanks for the honor to be back. It's <laughs> almost like a veteran here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, and as you mentioned, I'm, I'm joined by my co-host, Ethan. Hey, Ethan. Hey, Sean. Hey, Hugo. Good to see you again. It is fun. We haven't done a recording for a while, so uh, I'm, ex I'm excited to be, uh, to be doing another recording. We had a, a bunch of them backed up, and so now this is, I think this is our first of 2022. Three, so yeah. almost 2022. <laughs> so it's, it's how uh, how much of a of, of a uh, time warp that I'm in. But um, all right, well, we, we'll jump right into it. So uh, so we actually, as as Hugo mentioned, he's a he's a bit of a veteran, and and uh, he's he's been here on the Breakout Growth podcast in the past with a company called EV Box, and so they're a manufacturer of electric vehicle charging stations and a super fast growth company where uh, Hugo was. Uh, chief growth officer. And now we have him back on as the founder of his own startup. And so it, it's going to be a, an interesting conversation contrasting a super fast growing company to one that, that, that and that fast growing company actually had been acquired to one now where you're starting the journey from the beginning. So maybe you can give us a, uh, a, a quick introduction to what Ritmo is and, and what drove you to take on this new challenge. 
Yeah, so 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 EV Box, you know, to, to wrap up that story, EV Box was a fantastic experience, you know, a hyper growth experience from uh, ten to six hundred people in in you know close to five six years, and then uh, we grew also from I don't know six seven million to a hundred plus million revenue. So so that was all great, um, and now nurture the experience for life, learnings, achievements, failures. The trigger for Ritmo happened actually with the sabbatical I took after EVBOX. So me, my wife, and my daughter, which was a six-month-old daughter, we went to Costa Rica for three months. And during that period, it helped me reflect not just on EVBOX, but all the prior experience I've had with startups and scale-ups and try to figure out, okay, who am I without EVBOX? Yeah, because you become very linked with the success of a company. So I was like, okay, so so who who am I now if not uh, if not the growth officer or the person that was with EVBox? So back to my kind of personal, let's call it north star or or personal statement. I really want to be a continuous agent of positive change. That that's kind of my internal core. So I start reconnecting a lot with the people that I hadn't been in contact with EVBox. Uh, you know, maybe sadly so, but the intensity of a startup and scale up sometimes trumps personal relationships and I was like, okay, the last seven years have been a little bit, maybe too much focus on the growth. And now let me reconnect with people I work in the past, where they are. And that conversation led me to the realization that there was something off with the ways that teams are being engaged or being managed nowadays. Um, And due to a variety of factors, a lot of conversations that were talking about how trust between managers and employees were lost or harder to be retained on how the post-pandemic remote and hybrid work brought challenges on a day-to-day basis, on how to manage a team almost virtually, but no one was changing the habits and uh, organizations were becoming more top-down rather than a bottom-up conversation. And somehow there's more tools than ever before for knowledge management like Notion, ClickUp, but the information overload is making really hard for teams to be productive. So so many conversations were there and then I realized, okay, what about trying to start something simple, which is a vision to build a platform that just enables a productive team culture. That was the basis for Ritmo. And then with that, I was like, okay, but what does that mean? And then we were like, okay, let's start by thinking that Ritmo will be a place where you bring clarity to the team by making collective decisions where people can engage in conversations on a specific topic, call out a decision and then rate the decision that was made a month, three months, and six months down the line, because that's one thing that never happens, which is what is the impact of something we have decided on down the line? Uh, and doing that by integrating data like Salesforce, Google Analytics, so for enforcing or empowering the team to be data-driven from the get-go. And then the other part is running habit-forming experiments, which in product is very common to do. Yeah, so we want to run an experiment. We did an, we build an hypothesis. What is the expected outcome? How do we run the experiment? And how are we going to track the improvement? But funny enough, no one does that for the team. You know, no one runs an experiment on a team as simple as how can we improve trust amongst the team and improve and increase psychological safety? And just let the team run with a few hypotheses let them run the experiment, the team members, not the manager, but the team members. And then once the outcome is there, adopt and scale. That, that's essentially the concept behind. So just helping build this collective decision-making, having an experiment sort of platform that helps uh, track the experiments on the team, and then automating the rituals to create an effective team workflow. So kind of create recipes for a retrospective, for a Monday kickoff. So that's the, the hidden part behind Ritmo, but overall, we want to iterate and figure out how we can really be a a coach behind the team to create a productive team culture and very practically speaking. Great. I have, I have another question for you, but I want to bring Ethan in here. Uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll save it for, for a little bit. Ethan, uh, go for it. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting because when, when Sean and I, uh, have coached growth teams a lot, you know, you think of it like, okay, you know, how are we going to organize the growth team? And you launch it and it's never what you think it's going to be. And it always ends up being a series of experiments to figure out what's the right approach to kind of balance the needs and and the culture. Um, so I, I do like the idea that it's a way to sort of build in testing into your own processes that's actually sort of tracked and managed. And I love the idea of 
reviewing decisions over time because a lot of times we just live with them and hope for the best. Um, but I think it, it probably is super valuable to think about it. Like how do how in general how are we looking back at our decision making? Do we have to you know optimize that? Um, what I was curious about though was as you tra- made this transition from this really like large hyper growth company with all this success into the world of the startup world, which is so different. I mean, 600 people to probably a handful of people now. Um, I'm curious what you brought from the scale up world that you think really is going to help you be a better founder and and better leader uh, in this role. And also maybe is there anything that you had to sort of unlearn or uh, push aside because you'd say that actually might be detrimental in, you know, in this, in the startup world. Oof, that, that, is a, that is a really <laughs> big question. Um, definitely going through all the different stages of growth at TV Box helps you gain memory muscle on what to do at certain different stages, at least understanding, oh, these are the common challenge that happens at this phase, and this is what you can do about that or the multiple options. Um, I actually believe at this stage of the company, the previous startups can help me more because it was the search for the product market fit. But once product market fit is found, there are a few things at TV Box that happened well and didn't happen so well that helped me out. One of them being, for example, to continuously re-engage the organization on what is key focus and what matters most and having the courage to say no to things that are in priority to that growth path. And I say specifically courage to say no because a lot of the times what happens, especially with B2B SaaS, is you go after your segment, you grow, 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 and then maybe there is one enterprise company that wants to come in. And then you're like, oh, this is a really big contract. But it might not be the right fit for your product. But then you go after this enterprise and try to solve their customer pain. Um, you know, and the, all the other ones that you are targeting that were part of your growth path are left behind and not really having the usability for your product anymore. So that's one of the things that with EVBox is definitely a great learning. And at, at its best, I felt that EVBox was really connecting purpose, priority, and productivity really well. There was a very clear mission that everyone was connected with. The priorities were well set and driven uh, through the organization. And everyone was being productive by trusting each other's expertise. That was the moment we were at our best as an organization. Um, And that also happened because the attention was put on what the customer wants, moreover, what the competition is doing. And that's one thing that I want to also bring with me, which is the tendency to look at the competition pretty quickly, or they are doing this, they are doing this, they are doing this, let's do the same, especially on the feature wise. And maybe losing touch with the customer is something I I do not want to forget. So those for me are key elements of the scaling up that I I want to bring up. On the unlearning part, um, I think one of them is is kind of a, a privilege that happened at TV Box, which was uh, the fact that there was a mindset to serve the industry, and uh, and this partnering up together, you know, being very close even with competition to work together to solve a customer pain. And I'm now conscious that I have to learn and learn a little bit that mindset that that maybe I have to understand that it is a very competitive world where I'm headed towards and. The people I'm addressing and the target audience I'm addressing are going to evaluate different propositions to solve their pains, and I'm not going to be the only one. So that is an unlearning I have to do. And the other one is just the amount of investment that went into EV Box, into hiring technology investments. That was very easy to get used to, you know, like uh, uh, not unlimited budget, but more than enough budget to operate what you need. And the reality is that now I have to operate more on a creative way of reaching the customer rather than, I don't know, advertisement spent or big, big brand awareness investment. So I think I have to unlearn the, you know, the easiness of getting that money to execute things. So I have to be much more smarter and creative on getting attention to what the problem is solved, uh, to what the product is solving. Yeah, I think the, uh, the the contrast of what you're doing right now is so big compared to compared to when we had you on before. Um, I think you were saying you were, you know, at times the, the company was adding 50 people in a month, and you know these these massive scaling challenges, and and you know at at your stage, you know, tr- trying to trying to get the right solution and understand the market in the right way. It's it's a it's kind of a a different type of of puzzle piece that you're dealing with. But I, I do think some of that, some of that scaling that you were, were doing, that massive scaling that you were doing probably informs the product roadmap to some, some degree. 
um, I'm, I'm curious how, uh, how, how you're using that experience to, to, to help you guide development of the product. Yeah, so, so definitely, definitely it helps, and especially in two ways. One of them, in that crazy period of people onboarding, uh, a lot of the focus we've put at the time was on the onboarding experience, that three days, one week, two weeks, we, we changed a, a variety of times. There was very intense on presentations, workshops, but then after those two weeks, people were like, okay, now go on to your role, execute, and thank you very much, see you in one of the next meetups. And people have to basically get up and running, read a bunch of documents on Confluence, Slack. But what I realized is that they took quite, especially as the company started growing faster and faster, was getting bigger. It was really tough for them to understand how they differentiate, how can they add value to the team because the team was changing so fast that they didn't understand how the team made decisions or how the team communicated and engaged. And uh, there is no way to just... No one was scrolling up on Slack threads and seeing like, oh, let me see what they discuss about this. No one has the time or the intent to do that. But they would love to They would love to join a team and be like, oh, let me think about what they made decisions on product marketing in the past or what kind of decisions or experiments they run in the past. How does a team come to decisions? Who participates? All that information is so valuable for you to understand who you are joining and what kind of value you can add and contribute to it. So that, that keeps on my mind off the back, which is, okay, how can this be kind of the social muscle that when you join a team, you can actually go back and see, okay, let me see the last three months of decisions and what kind of decisions this team spends time on. That kind of thing I don't see out there. And maybe it's because it's underestimated the power of understanding that. So that gives me value and, and, and strength to see that, okay, let me see if that is actually a pain point that can solve so much. Um, that's one of the elements. And the other one is just the way you search information on, I don't know, confluence on how the company runs. And it's more futuristic view for Ritmo where I would love that people just join a company and say, has anyone tried an experiment on the homepage that drove any kind of results in the past 18 months? And it just literally gives you the answer, almost like the chat GPT approach, but, but just to give you the answer of saying based on three documents or based on four conversations, the last experiment was done on this date with these results. I think that would be an amazing memory muscle, especially as I also join a few fractional leadership roles as I build Ritmo yeah, for, you know, very clear cash flow reasons on the personal side. And when I join a team and try to understand how they came to be who they are, it's really tough for me to quickly figure out why they made certain decisions. Why did they pick this vendor? Why did they choose this strategy? And there's no, there's no one that documents that on any platform because it's just too time consuming. So but for me, it will help me a lot as someone that just joined the team to understand, okay, you know, how this team came to these decisions because it will save me so much time. So that's the kind of things that help me. Yeah. And a fast growing company, like <laughs> you get a bunch of the team members have only been there a few months also. So yeah, yes. like, it's, it's just really hard to exactly. find anyone who's got the institutional knowledge. <laughs> and normally the first thing I do is almost look at the folder structure of the team. And if I look at the folder structure... Also because I'm a very structured person, if I look at the folder structure and if I spend more than five minutes trying to find something, I already know, okay, this is going to be chaos. And in my team, we discuss the folder structure every year, and it was actually a project on its own to just, okay, how can we document knowledge? And it had to be almost like, not an objective and key result on its own, but it requires so much effort to keep knowledge just with the intent of saying, hey, we are going to disappear as a team. Maybe not now, but maybe in five years, 10 years, 15 years, this is going to be a different team. So let's make sure that the next ones that come in have the resources to do better than us. That's the way I think, you know, the ones that come after have to do better than, than us and whoever was there before. Yeah. I want to rewind a little bit too, to, to a question I skipped over, um, but, but one that I think is kind of fundamental to this journey for you. Um, if, you if you can like tell us a little bit about the 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 founder sort of uh, the the founder experience versus versus you know when you were part of these these fast growing teams before maybe where, where where some surprises are in that that founder experience um, and just I know you've you've kind of touched on that in some of the earlier questions but just digging in a little bit more about your day to day kind of culture shift one of the hardest parts I found was actually how to prioritize your week your day to day 
because you can do anything. You can, all right, should I work on my deck? Should I go and start a funding round and go and do a pitch nonstop to every single angel investor VC? Should I really focus on the product? Should I just go and talk to as many potential customers as possible? There's so many things that as a founder, you almost might get blocked by the amount of things you can do. You know, like, should I, should I iterate on the website? So I find that the right prioritization is a tough one. Um, I'm trying to center myself around uh, nailing down the exact pain point that has the most value to what we're trying to address. And that is kind of my guiding approach. So is this getting me closer to figure out the pain point that I actually want to tackle? And is, is the solution resonating with them? But even then it's tough. So, but what surprised me the most, and I'm not sure if it's good or not, but I was surprised by the amount of conversations that exist on the founder the first question is always about funding round. And I, maybe because I came from a whole startup scale lab experience, I always think that the first question should be about either the problem you are solving or the customers you are talking to. But almost immediately, I mean, when someone talks to me, asks the one minute pitch and says, so are you raising funds? And I'm like, why is that the default way of building a company? And uh, so that, that's a surprising fact. So, so there's plus and minuses on that, but it was surprising to me to see so much attention given to it, where I see multiple ways of growing a company besides a traditional funding round or funding or, or fun, uh, raise funding. Um, that's one. On the other side, the best part is the, really the flexibility of your day to pick your battles. And, uh, and I, I feel at best when I'm talking to a customer, you know, he's talking about the pain point. I, I, can, I can connect with the pain point. I'm like, oh, yes, 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 yes. I know what you're talking about. I've seen a pattern. And then maybe the solution resonates with them. And yeah, sometimes it resonates and they say, yes, yes, you are on the right track. Sometimes they say, well, some parts resonate, some parts not because I solve it in any other way. So not everything is like flowers and everyone resonates. Some people say, no, this is, this is, this is too, too simple for me. So, but it gives me energy to talk to customers. And I think that's the best part about being a founder, which is the chance to, you know, to just double down on, on that, on that part of customer advocacy or customer input. Yeah. Which at a, which at a scale up sometimes can be tough. You know, the, the bigger it becomes, I realized that if box towards the end, if I wanted to talk to a customer, I had to talk to the account executive, which said, oh, let me find the right moment to talk to the customer. And, you know, I just want to basically say, I want to talk to the customer, I want to talk it now or tomorrow. That's it. You know, it's just that there's no, why there is so many restrictions to talk to a customer. And everyone, you know, so, so that part, I'm, I'm glad I don't have to think about that any longer. You know, it's just like, okay, I want to talk today to a customer. Let me talk to a customer today or a prospect or a, an audience. Yeah. So ha have those conversations that you've been having with, with different people in, in different industries, has that helped you already kind of figure out where where this where you think this will resonate or are you still trying to figure out like who the market really is um there are well i i realize more and more that naturally if you are a remote team working asynchronously this has more empathy product teams marketing growth teams have more also affinity because they already run experiments they already see the pain point of having so many decisions so they understand they understand the concept of, of experiments, for example, or a product team understands the concept of rituals. But for example, I had a few conversations with some people that came from sales or from finance. For them, it's a little bit tougher uh, because they don't run experiments. Some of them, the ritual is just a weekly meeting or a bi-weekly meeting, and that's it. So, so it's quite a leap for them to think about, but how do I run an experiment with a team? Why would I let my team members run an experiment? How does it look like? So the, the, the knowledge gap is so much that at least at the start, we are really focusing on product and engineering teams and some growth teams that are especially working remotely and asynchronously. And we know that the sweet spot is, is, is somewhere at a, at a period of time if at Evox was, which is less than 250 people and more than 10 people. So that's kind of the funnel that I'm doing, trying to get to as, as focused as possible on a let's call it ideal customer profile or a persona, even, even if it's a wrong one, at least I'm focusing on understanding their pain point really well and the kind of organization they live. And then if I can build something that resonates, then yes, then I, I, I'll, keep, I'll keep iterating. And if not, well, that's a great part of, of, of being a product-led company. You just adjust, spin off, uh, um, try something else, try a new approach, and, and here you go again. That's it. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, when we when you spoke to Sean a couple of years ago, the thing I remember one of the things that really stuck out to me was you you talked about and and I think you alluded to this a little earlier. You weren't just trying to take markets; you were trying to lead the industry, um, which is like such an interesting way to look at the world. And you explained why customer advocacy was such an important piece of that. And it seems like for you, customer advocacy is just built into who you are. But as you think about what's what to do next, what to prioritize, and and making sure you're not getting ahead of your skis. Are you thinking about like, how am I going to lead this industry? Or are you saying, no, let me just figure out a market. Is it sort of the opposite or is it the same? So mindset wise is similar. Um, but the difference with DVBox is I knew that I was at a momentum where I knew, okay, this company has a good positioning, has already a solid brand, has product market fit. The industry is just growing and it doesn't know exactly doesn't know exactly what to trust or what are kind of basic questions. You know, it was at a stage where, you know, people were almost asking the equivalent of how many emails can I send with 10 gigabytes? That was the kind of stage. No one asks that today. You have 10 gigabytes on your cell phone. You just use it. You don't know how many videos of minute you can play. But at the time, people were really asking that, okay, if I use EVbox, how many kilowatts do I need to drive 10 kilometers, which is a, you know, a ridiculous conversation. You don't need to think about that. It's just, <laughs> you just charge, drive you know, on a day-to-day -day basis. <laughs> but, but that was a stage that they were in. So I was like, wow, we can really lead the industry because all the competitors were just trying to sell and build market and no one was trying to educate the market and say, hey, let, let us help you out understand this. So we took that angle. Now, this is a different angle, leadership, team engagement, team platform. There's so much knowledge out there. Um, and I don't want to be presumptuous to see I'm going to lead the industry. But I do have the mindset to say, I think there is a chance to influence the industry on what might be some different ways of thinking about team engagement, team ownership, peer-to-peer -peer leadership in an era where that is becoming less and less often. So that that's where I think about and. A good example of how I still think on a partnering way, um, we, for example, the way we are launching Rhythm is through a partnership with another company, which were co-founders that I met, which were trying to address the same problem, but from a different angle. They come from a, a new type of assessment based on transactive memory system that identifies levers of the team and how to become more productive. So they were build that, building that platform. We are building Rhythm and they said, well, we have the assessment you have the tool that can help them track all the experiments and interventions. Let's team up and do a joint pilot to our, our customers and your customers. So we are, we are now starting a pilot with a few, you know, even large multinationals and small companies because we don't know who can work the best with. And we are teaming up and we might still finish the pilot and go our separate ways, but we are teaming up on let's understand what, what this industry is about and what are the pain points that people are feeling. Um, so that comes from this mindset. And maybe if I was very competitive driven, I'd be like, no, 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 you are a competitor, go your way and I go mine. So elements of it are there, but I'm not kidding myself and understanding that, yes, this is going to be an industry that also wants to compete and also wants to say, this is how we rank up against you and vice versa. So, so it's a little bit different from EV Box, but some parts of it are retaining. Yeah, I think, um, you know, it, it, when you were when you were kind of talking about like your your day to day activity and and where do you put your time how do you prioritize these things a lot of the the examples that you gave came back to things that relate to getting to product market fit so and even as you're talking about here ideal customer profile uh, is it is it you know from ten to two hundred and fifty or is it somewhere else and um, so I, I want to kind of stick with that theme and say, all right, obviously so much of your success is going to be governed by your ability to uh, really find the right product that, that meets the needs of, of a market that isn't even fully identified yet. And so what, what does that process look like for, for getting there? Uh, that that helps you guide some of that prioritization, but but ultimately, you know, you you said you know the the pain point and the problem focus. I assume that you did some work there even before deciding to go forward. If you if you didn't think the problem was existing, the solution probably wouldn't matter. But I, so I'm curious, maybe what work did you do that said, okay, there really is an opportunity here. I'm going to build a, a a company around this, and then what what does it continue to look like now? 
So, so interesting enough. And, and what helped me here was also I joined an acceleration program over the summer. Um, okay. that, that helped me get into the momentum of it, but not with Rhythm, but in a general how to be a founder and connect with other founders. So that gave me a bit of structure. Um, but what was most interesting that I actually work over three months of before even deciding that, yes, I'm going to launch this. And, and that was spent on... Let's call it a, a phase I call is even pre-product market fit, just language market fit. I, I, I think that, that would be the, the best iteration, which is, is what I'm trying to promise and what I'm trying to address resonating with the audience without even talking about the product. So I think I, we got, I put a few surveys out there that was quantitative analysis. I got probably 200, 250 replies to those in total. So that helped me have some quantitative analysis there. Then I had four in-depth pilots uh, where I build up a survey uh, with the help of a neuroscientist uh, person uh, that was at, at, the, at the cohort. I got lucky there. We built a type of survey that helps just give a dimension to the team. And that helped trigger experiments that the team wanted to run. And then I'll coach the team into running those experiments along with the manager. And that took about two months. And I did only with four teams because there was no capacity for more. But I was in-depth with... Uh, one team of 40 people of marketing team, one team of 20 HR people, one team of just 10 people startup with the founder. So, so that was in-depth talks with the team on a daily basis, see if the experiment was running and without, and then all the teams improved the way they were working at the end of it. So I was like, okay, there is some proof of concept, but it was very much handhold. Yeah. So, you know, with someone helping them out almost like as a consultant. So kind of an MVP being more of a consulting approach exactly. for the MVP. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And the MVP was built, you know, a little bit with, uh, you know, using a survey tool for the survey, then using a whiteboarding tool like Miro for the workshops, then building a, a Slack channel with a fake AI, which was basically me, not AI, fake bot, which was me replying to all the team challenges. So they'll pose there and I'll reply back. But all of that was giving me in-depth information. So after the survey, after that, and I did about 60 interviews with different people. That was like, like super intense. At the end of it, I was like, okay, I'm st there's still something out there and there's still so many pain points that is impossible to tap them all. But I'm gonna start with one that everyone talked about, which was the inability to affect change, that they lose, they lose the interest and they disengage with the company, with the team at the moment that they say, I can no longer contribute and affect positively with the team. And I and then if I double down on that, it was because they were not asked anything about the team. They didn't have a say on how the team works. So I, then I was like, okay, there's something about the team culture. And that's how I, you know, then afterwards what I did was I put a landing page online uh, and uh, put some Google ads even, be even behind it with some of my own money just to see what happens with the traffic. And... Uh, and that start me seeing, you know, like, okay, if I put something about this topic, X amount of people convert. If I put these, more people convert. If I send this landing page to 50 friends, five of them actually sign up. So I tested maybe 15 landing pages over two, three months and just seeing which one uh, resonated the most. Um, and then in October, I was like, okay, now I'm fine. Now I found a co-founder. That was a very important part. Finding a co-founder is key because I was not going to do this alone. Uh, and he's a CTO, a technical co-founder who I trust and work seven years with. And then uh, and I was like, okay, now I have someone that can build a platform, which reduces the stress of building. I did a lot of tests. You know, I'm sure I'm out on something, even if I am not pinning, pinpointing exactly that holds, you know, golden egg of a solution. I still know that's something out there. I still see the pain point being there. And that's for me enough to keep moving. Yeah, no. And then uh, you, you're one of the things you also touched on when you were talking about kind of the, the ideal customer profile, you said, I think you said, if it's, if it's a growth team that is, has at least some remote element to it. So I'm, I'm curious it, when you, when you're looking at the, you know, given that so many teams have moved to, to kind of hybrid and remote, is there, is there some market trends that are, are essentially making some of the problems worse that you're trying to solve that that maybe will uh maybe will increase um market need as as you as you figure out what that market need is and how to how to solve it there's there's also trends that are growing that market need um yeah they, well there's definitely a few of them that are happening and you see them popping up in a few a few places so naturally after corona the whole home and remote working 
is demanding for a different kind of leadership or a different kind of, of management. Um, because at the office, everything was very much physical, present. And then in remote work, it was everything online, everything through meetings. But, you know, then everything that was individual interactions and sparks was replaced by a conference call, which means that people just got wear down and, and exhausted. Um, and now with hybrid work, it's what's happening is, is I think I haven't seen any office changing that, which is you do a workshop now that you went back to the office, but half of the people are online, half of the people are in person, but the people that are in person run as if it was a physical meeting and the online people are just trying to keep up with it. So there's still a disconnect on practices of engagement that really work out. And the people that are being left out don't find a way to voice out their opinion uh, because the trend is to do an employee engagement score so people ask a survey to the company every six months, every three months. But the trend is that change on a team culture is happening more on a weekly or at least on a monthly basis. It's going so fast the changes that people have to start paying attention to the team more frequently than launching a survey every six months. So that's one of the things that is happening, the need for a dynamic team culture rather than a fixed culture. So that's one of those ones. And the other one, and that's one that also is going to be challenging for me as well as a founder of a B2B SaaS, but there's a sense of app fatigue. Yeah, So everyone is overwhelmed with the amount of tools, not because of a tool that will compete with mine, but because I have a communication tool, then an OKR tool, then an HR tool, then a Salesforce tool. And besides the day-to-day -day tools on your application of the phone, which is a hundred, so yeah, the the team I'm working with just to, to build on that, like uh, I'm I'm in my fourth month of an interim VP growth role that I haven't actually announced yet, um, kind of kind of publicly for for a number of reasons we could go into at a different time, but the uh, the we we recently had a conversation where we have we have a process a growth process that sits across two tools. And, and the desire from the engineering team to consolidate it into one tool, for example, where it's, it's the more technical tool where some of the, 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 the um, kind of uh, non-engineers that are part of the growth team are, are maybe a little bit nervous about going into, into a, a very technical tool. And so, yeah, this, I, I think it's this app fatigue that you're talking about. It is interesting. It's like, gosh, do we really need two for this or can we consolidate down to one? And then you're, you're in a situation where you're like, now maybe even a third or a fourth or a fifth uh, that, that are part of uh, layering on top of processes. I think that's uh, yeah. an interesting uh, background to go into. I used to, I used to refer to it as, as tool creep. And, and I agree. I think it's gotten much worse. I remember at, at one time years ago at Teltech, we just did an audit of all the tools we had and what we were paying for and what we were actually using. And like, it was just like cathartic getting rid of so many things that we weren't using. But the, the reality is that, you know, I think people also naturally start to look to tools to solve problems and, uh, which I mean, that's why you have tools, but um, we, I think we over-index on the tool being the solution to more of a cultural problem. So we would, you know, we started with Jira and then we moved to a product called Clubhouse. Then we moved to another product and another product. I'm like, I don't think it's the tool that, that's the problem. I think it's us. Yeah. <laughs> like we have to come up with yeah. a different way to work. Um, yeah. So it sounds like you're, yeah. you're addressing a lot of that. Yeah. So, and, and we, me and the, um, our founder try to build some principles. So one of them is understanding that we have to build in mind that people, to, at least to a certain extent, majority of the people should be able to use a tool where they are. Yeah. So if you spend your time on Slack, maybe there should be a way that you don't have to log in and just can get all the information, share all the information and interact while, without leaving it. That's one of the principles. The other one is that it comes down with a survey. So the tendency to have more and more surveys to figure out what's wrong with the team. And you're trying to double down on the idea that let's try to figure out how to improve and help the team be productive and, uh, and have a good team culture without a single survey. Um, and, and that's a, bit, a little bit more challenging, but we think there's an opportunity there because whereby individually you might not be able to open up your communications because it might be too private, but as a team, you know, having a chance to analyze the way the team talks, the way the team engages, the way the team decides, creates so much knowledge on how teams interact that maybe that alone can tell, hey, the team is feeling really tired, you know, because of this kind of like tone of voice or this kind of interaction. 
maybe it's good to give a rest. Maybe it's good to do something about this. And that should be the direction and not I like that. Like yet to, another. What's, what's the energy boost program that we need to bring into yeah. there? Yeah. Something, something along those lines. So, so naturally, that's where we want to head on without building yet another survey because that, that's how everyone gets knowledge on the mm-hmm. team. But along with that fatigue, we just need that people are, are exhausted of surveys, you know, that, that yet another survey. And so, yeah, so we are trying to figure out if there is a possibility technology-wise to do it, which seems to be, but yeah. um, but it's going to take its time. And it's fine. We, we are here for the long run, not for a short-term win. Yeah. Yeah. But it's but it's interesting when you say you're, you're here for the long run. Um, it's, you know, having gone down a similar journey myself of... of being ahead of growth at some really fast growing companies and then saying, damn it, I'm going to be a founder and I I have so much respect for founders. I'm going to go down that journey. And then literally spending, you know, 10 years of, of working on some different businesses and some of them with some success and some exits and others with, with, uh, you know, none of them to the success that I wanted to have. And then, and then, Essentially saying, you know, I'm, I, I don't have a great skill for getting to product market fit. Where my, where my strength is, it's about understanding that product market fit and, and really accelerating into, into the markets when I've got a good product that, that has that need. Um, I, you know, obviously don't want to just, I, like I, I, the reason I wanted to become a founder was because I have so much respect for founders. I'm, I'm, I'm just curious when you, do you go through periods where you're like, man, I just wish I had product market fit to just grow <laughs> so fast and just, you know, it's, it's so exciting and, and, and such an, an awesome feeling when, when you have something customers want and you just have to be creative about getting a lot more of them. How, how's that kind of emotional journey of like grass is greener on the other side? <laughs> <laughs> that is, uh, well, that is that you're putting it quite, quite there. Um, I, I think it's I, at least on a weekly basis I go through some sort of imposter syndrome kind of kind of feeling. I think it's not on a daily basis, at least on a weekly basis. And and the fact that I still do the fact that I still chose to build a product and not going for a full on funding round, but really tapping into I'm going to double down until I find a customer. And then once I find a customer, once I have traction, when I say yeah, this is really working and is great then maybe I can look for ways to accelerate that go to market. Yeah. Uh, that was my choice of approach. Might be wrong or right, but it was a I think choice it's a, I, I, I think made. it's a smart approach, actually. Yeah. And also with the economic circumstances of today's market, maybe maybe it's better to do a better... It's maybe better but, to start yeah, with a once really you, good Once round. you take on money, then, then once you take on enough money, then, then essentially that gives you a lot of staying power that... Um, and a lot of staying power is not necessarily what the goal is. You know, you 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 don't want to stay if you don't have a solution that really solves an important problem. Especially if you've been down that journey with EV Box, where you saw what real product market fit looks like. Um, but it it is a huge challenge getting to that product market fit. And so I think that's where if you if you're really confident you have it, then taking lots of funding to accelerate into it is is great. But I, I like a, the way you're approaching it now. Yeah. So that, that's the approach. And what I did was I'm, I put a time frame to myself. I said within the next three to five years, I'm really going to invest on this journey. So. And if I figure out that it doesn't work or that I like you, right, there is a part of me that thinks maybe I'm not fit to be a founder and I have to come to the realization because it's not the right stage. Maybe from zero to one, not my style. Like, you know, it might be one to a hundred and that, that's perfectly fine. But I had to figure out if the zero to one is possible. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 and part not, of that's that experimental mindset that, that yeah. makes us good at growth in the first place. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so the next, three, the next three to five years is that. And I said that everything takes into account. So I even said, and we, me and my co-founder have this agreement, if in a year and a half, for example, we are not figuring out with the product, we even said, okay, we go, Ritmo becomes a service company for a time period for us to get deeper knowledge and goes back to become a product company. Even that is on the table just to, just to, you know, just to figure out that if you can really make an impact to the people you want to serve. So that's the kind of like non-scalable kind of people, things that people do to figure out there. And we are also conscious that most of the success stories that inspire us all the founders said it was a seven to 10 year journey and no one even heard of what you were trying to build in the first five years. And suddenly it grew and it becomes a success story, but then no one, you know, they say like all the first three years of 
sleepless night challenges, you know, that becomes, you know, in retrospective, very important, but yeah, they are gone. Um, so I put a three to five year frame and then if in this three to five year, five year frame, I real, you know, we realize that, okay, the zero to one is just not our sweet spot. That's great. I'm, I'm pretty sure this experience might also help me become an even better scale-up builder if I decide to go back to that journey uh, and resonate better with the founders. Right. I think, uh, it has, I think it has for me because you start to realize how important product market fit truly is. It's not about the tactics. It's about actually understanding why your product resonates with certain people in a certain way and how to acquire those people at scale to an experience where they're going to be able to appreciate the product. And I think if you haven't tried to create product market fit, you you could potentially breeze over the importance of that. Yeah, no, true, true, truly agree. Yeah. So what do you see now as the biggest challenge you have to overcome? Um. For for me, is the how to nail down one the actual pain point I want to solve first, and how we and how we are solving really resonates and makes it work for those teams that trust us, um, because it's such a big topic with a lot of pain points, and even the people that sign up they sign up for different reasons for Ritmo, and all those different reasons are also different product development priorities. Um, so, so that's really a big challenge and trying to overcome that, but by just seeing which of the users that are willing to go to the better are also willing to sign that if it works well, they are agreed to the price, for example. And then I say, okay, maybe there is a pattern of the people that want to solve this problem are willing to pay because it's such a big one. And these ones that say, yeah, 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 this, I really want to test out, but they are not willing to commit. Maybe it's not strong enough to, uh, of a pain point to, you know, to help people that are willing to pay for it. So that's kind of the approach to overcome the, the biggest challenge that I see now with Ritmo and what we are facing now. And uh, I, I think that's, that's the majority of the one. And of course, like finding the product market fit comes from this. But yeah, I, I think this is the biggest one that is on my mind, which is the actual big pain point. And with that figuring out what is the ideal customer profile, not from all those, but even more funneled down to the to the actual people that are facing it. Because now there's a lot of personas, which I know from BBBox doesn't work out. You have to go towards, you know, a few. And so that that's the other one, which is doubling down on the ideal customer profile. Maybe it's not 10 to 250, but it's just 10 to 20 and that's it. Right. And just doubling down all the 10 to Or at 20. least in the, in the beginning. And maybe it's like to, to then tap into the 20 to 50, we'll, we'll, need, to, we'll need to have a much more sophisticated yeah. product or in, uh, you uh, know, uh, kind of a roadmap there. <laughs> and, and, some, and sometimes there are conversations that throw you off and you, you don't even know how to react. So, for example, one of them was, was a, a CEO that signed up, um, 200 people company. And he says, I was looking for a tool like that for my management team. He wants to have all the executive management decisions that are always lost, um, you know, centralized in one place that the team really uses well. He says, you should just build this for management teams and supervisory boards so that they all have the decisions that they made. And, uh, you know, if I want to go back and see if executive did the wrong decision, I can say, this is a decision you made six months ago, and this is where we are now. But... But I was like, well, that's, uh, you know, it was a little bit far off, but, um, but I was like, okay, this is actually an interesting proposition. I never thought just for the top, top teams, because they're willing to spend more if it works for them. Yeah. But I think <laughs> but, that's, uh, that, that's a scary part of the journey is that like, you might end up six months from now going, damn it, I had the answer from that one conversation and it took us an extra six months to go there because I, I just didn't listen hard enough. And so there's so many paths that you can go. It's, uh, yeah, you can definitely be nervous about the path not yeah. taken. <laughs> and, and, and it's an incredible challenge, especially with, even with scale-ups that happens. And, and to be honest, at, at TVBox, even the previous, I think almost everyone faces, there are so many paths to grow that even at TVBox, we found many of them, but because there were so many of them, at times, the growth was becoming unsustainable because the requirements of customers are so diverse that you want to build products for all of them, whereby you actually have to say, we're no longer going to serve this type of customer and we have to let go uh, of this chunk of revenue because it's no longer suiting us. So that's such a scary decision to make um, that I understand that yeah, a lot of scale-ups prefer to just keep on going and yeah, the market will rectify itself. And then suddenly down the line, they think, hmm, 
I should have done that decision a year ago to avoid the situation where I'm now. And, and that happened also at TV Box without the fault of anyone, just uh, the sheer excitement of trying to become the best at everything for everyone. That, that's it. Yeah. I think for founders, I, I know I, I remember thinking, you know, after, after the fact, hindsight is such a curse. It's uh, being able to, you, you, because you can, you can absolutely look back at everything you did and think about a different way you could have done it that probably would have been better. And in the moment, yeah. it's so hard to realize that. <laughs> like, the, the only thing that I will, I will say there, ha having, having like, uh, I don't want to use too much of a, of a U.S. term where we talk about it as like a, a Monday morning quarterback or, a, you know, armchair quarterback, but um, the, uh, the, which is an American football thing. But, um, but, but ultimately, I, um, you know, when I look back at, at some of the struggles that I had uh, with with startups that I've that I've tried to grow from product market fit, I think my biggest like regret was I got too excited about my solution and didn't spend enough time really validating frustration around the problem. And I don't hear that from you. I hear I hear you focusing a lot on understanding the problem and making sure that you're you're solving a problem that that really matters to people so that's good well, well the fun <laughs> the fun fact was the trigger moment for me on that and it's very hard because you know when you're leading a team or a founder you get to excite you get to excited about your own voice that's what i normally say you know and that's that's not a good thing um but it was actually my team taught me that on the day that I was very clear that people go to the website, they search by product. There's no other way, you know? And then my, let's call it lead generation, demand generation, head of growth marketing, because at the time our titles were all over the place, but she was the closest to a growth marketeer. She was saying, look, I, Ugo, I think the user behavior is changing. I think people want to search by their use case, by if, they are, if I'm a facility manager, a workplace, if I am... And at the time, thank God I did that. I said, okay, prove me wrong. So she ran the whole experiment on the navigation, on the way people consume the content on the website. <laughs> and I was not just wrong, I was terribly wrong because all the open click rates through the website, time on page, bounce rate, uh, call to action to request a call, all of that improved by 50% plus by changing the navigation and the way of interacting with the website. So I was so wrong that I was like, okay, I, I think I've got to a stage where I create a lot of biases on my own formed opinions from past experience. And now I have to start asking more questions and let my team actually drive the conclusions and the experiment. So I think that was a, a key moment uh, to my team to prove me wrong on that one. And um, so, yeah, so thank, th that was a key, that was a trigger for me that led me to also where I am today of thinking, okay, I have to keep challenging my own assumptions which is tough when you are a founder because it's me and my co-founder battling each other's assumptions. <laughs> and, and we have a small agency that helps us out. So they also challenge a little bit of our assumptions. Um, but, but it's a very small team to challenge assumptions with each yeah. other. So I, but I find at, that, at least when you yeah. have different assumptions from your co-founder, that's, that's a particular focus of, okay, we can't both be right here. Let's 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 vet and try to find what the right answer is. And so sometimes when there's a difference of opinion, it's a, it it highlights an area where we should be doing some testing. Um, obviously, we could we could go on and ask a ton of questions and and keep talking. Um, as uh, not surprisingly, to, to even have you back on a couple of years later, it just shows that uh, the desire to keep talking with you is a strong one. So. Um, I, I, I do want to end with the same question that we ended with last time. And, and after you give me the answer, I'll actually play back what your answer was uh, the previous time. But it is, uh, what do you feel like you understand about growth now that you maybe didn't understand as well a few years ago? And we'll particularly say like while you were in the, in the heat of things at EV Box, mm. what do you understand about growth now that maybe you didn't yeah. understand then? Well, first off, thank you for that question because I use that question so many times in interviews. It's just the question to say, what do you feel about, what do you feel like you understand about team leadership now that you didn't understand as well a couple of years ago? It's a fantastic question. I, I absolutely love it. Um, I think the latest learning I've got, especially after EV Box, is just, just a simple realization that growth is really about 
for me, finding a systemic process and levers that help you grow, not just in a few months or years, but like for a decade or, lo or even longer. And for that to happen, it's not a job of a role of an individual or even a team. It's a stakeholder effort that everyone has to agree how growth happens, what are the growth levers, and having the buy-in on the path from all the senior leadership or key stakeholders. If that's not in place, what I've noticed at, EV, at EVBox and even at other scale-ups or startups I've been coaching is that it becomes one individual or one team putting all the effort on the growth lever, but no one else is on the same page, which means that a sales team can sell a service that is not, uh, is not possible or to a customer that is not intended to. CEO and management team can make decisions that don't fit the customer long-term profitability. So yeah, for me, growth is a, is a, is definitely a stakeholder buy-in uh, on how to build a systemic approach to uh, to a process that scales. Uh, that, that's how I've realized. I love that. I I spend a lot of time in my my current interim VP growth role of just essentially playing back the week's learnings to the leadership team of how does this business really grow and how is our view maybe evolved a little bit based on new insights on experiments that are working, new data we've uncovered, or even uh, qualitative insights through the dreaded surveys that uh, I can't find, I can't get away from them. I just, I, I love running surveys because I, I think it does add a layer there, but obviously uh, users may not be as enthusiastic, but I want to play back what you actually said last time too, just uh, just to, to show that, that constant evolution of thinking. You had talked about, uh, you know, paraphrasing here, but you cannot copy the strengths of a customer relationship. Uh, competitors copy the way you interact with customers, uh, or cannot copy the way you interact with customers. And so it really comes down to the importance of building those customer relationships. There's a, there's a real competitive advantage moat there, I think is what you were saying. Uh, any thoughts on that quote? <laughs> No, still, still, still valid. Yeah. So I, I, uh, I, I, wondering when do I actually apply that? At nowadays with the startup now, what I'm thinking that works once the foundation pro for product market fit is found. Yeah. So I agree. You cannot copy the string of a customer relationship, but the foundation to solve the problem has to be there. I think that's the evolution from that thinking, because the TV box was a was a given. So naturally, I was thinking like that. But now. I'm like, yeah, I have a great customer relationship with some people that are super enthusiastic about the product and they haven't yet used it naturally because it's being built or, or they see bits and pieces and try bits and pieces. But if, if it's launched to them and they say, well, actually it doesn't work the way I intended or I thought about, you can have a great relationship with them, but they say, okay, thank you very much. So, so now I realize you cannot copy the string of a customer relationship once the fundamentals of the pain point are solved and the product market fit is there, I think that's the addition that was not there before. Um, yeah. But but interest, interestingly, you did start earlier on. Uh, you mentioned that you really wanted to pay attention to what customers were doing more than competitors at this point. And I think that's that's really critical if you're understanding the problem. So. Yeah, no, definitely. And uh, yeah, I, I every time that someone signs up, I immediately contact to say, hey, can we have the call? Just, just to know you, to see what's there, what, what, what you're trying to solve with your team. I don't even care if they like read more or not. I just want to, hey, this is yet another person that somehow clicked on the access to early waiting list, better lists for some reason. So let me talk and understand why. So that's 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 my best source of knowledge at the moment. Yeah, awesome. So so key takeaways for me uh, is just reminding myself of what a challenging journey it is to get to product market fit. And again, just, you know, kudos to all those founders out there who, who've stuck with it. Like the world would not have so many great innovative solutions and, and all the progress if, if we didn't have founders that were willing to hang in there and get the right solutions to the problems that, that the world has. Uh, turns out that that's not for me as much. So just seeing the struggles of that challenge is a, is a reminder that uh, to, to appreciate the opportunity to work with companies that have already solved that so that I can I can pour fuel on the fire and, and help them grow faster. But uh, but I, I have mad respect for what you are working on and, and wish you the best in continuing to get it dialed in and uh, and, and driving success and uh 
Uh, we will have you back a third time to talk about your <laughs> massive breakout growth uh, uh, when when the time is right. <laughs> that will be a good sign for both of us. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks, Sean. Awesome, Hugo. Thanks. Uh, talk to Thanks. you guys later. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Breakout Growth Podcast. Please take a moment to leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. And while you're at it, subscribe so you never miss a show. Until next week.